Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. There's probably a lot of these kind of uh, uh, accounts that are still out there, still fairly uncovered accounts uh, that can that can certainly change our understanding. That's author and Journal of the American Revolution contributor Gary Eckelbarger talking about how one source gives us a whole new perspective on the Battle of the Clouds. And he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is brought to you by the Revolutionary War Visitor Center, Camden, South Carolina. Discover how South Carolina's quest for independence turned the tide of the American Revolution. Opening summer 2021. For more information, visit simplyrevolutionary.com. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today our guest is Journal of the American Revolution contributor Gary Eckelbarger. And he's writing about how one source, one account, changed his understanding of a battle, in this case the Battle of the Clouds, forever. One of the real sort of fun privileges of this show is the ability to talk shop. I know I've talked about this before, but to have a chance to talk to a historian about his or her methodology, researching, dealing with a topic, dealing with a source that either doesn't give you many answers or kind of can become the key to unlock a much bigger uh, puzzle, uh, is a real privilege. I, I really like doing it. And this is one of those great episodes for that. Uh, battles are chaotic, difficult things to understand for anyone, even with hundreds of accounts. But they're even harder to understand when there's very few. So anytime you can uncover a new first-hand account, it will always, always change your perspective on the event. You'll see what I mean. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Gary Eckelbarger. Gary Eckelbarger, thank you for joining us. Uh, thanks, Brady. I'm, I'm uh, honored to be a part of this today. Tell us about your background. My background uh, academically is is uh, in science. Um, I'm uh, my master's is in nutritional biochemistry, of all things, and I've been working for almost thirty years as a clinician at a hospital. I, I work primarily in the intensive care units, feeding people through tubes and uh, through IVs. So uh, it doesn't seem like it has a lot of crossover with uh, with history, but uh, history has always been. Uh, a fascination for me, and I developed a second career with that, um, uh, beginning in the 90s when I was uh, writing primarily with Civil War history and uh, writ- wrote several books about Civil War battles and events uh, dealing in the in the 19th century. But at the same time, I also was uh, uh, doing a lot of work for touring companies and running uh, a lot of American history tours from Lewis and Clark expeditions in the West to a civil war and Gilded Age era. And um, I was hired out periodically to do a lot of Revolutionary War era 
tours as well. And uh, I developed a, a stronger fascination with, uh, with certain campaigns of the revolution from that. What first drew your interest into this topic? This article, uh, I published a few articles with uh, the Journal of the American Revolution. This one is always fascinated me because I've, I've had this letter, <laughs> the letter from Clement Biddle, in my possession from a, uh, the first time I think I had an online uh, newspaper account maybe a dozen years ago. And I originally downloaded it and used it in preparation for a tour I was giving of the Brandywine battlefield. And, and as I looked at that letter more and more and, and looked at the traditional interpretation of, of, um, of the day that it was describing, I saw that there, there really was a, a strong difference between the two accounts. And I was fascinated by this letter because not only is he writing the letter, um, um, as a as a note or a missive to to his uh, superior, uh, both in the introduction and then in the in the PS section of the letter. So it really tells you if you can backtrack from the time when he says something occurred an hour or an hour and a half ago, you go from the timeline of the letter, which is only seven sentences long. So a lot of times a letter may be written and might have a time placed on it, let's say at noon. And the letter might be four or five pages, so maybe the letter started at noon, but if the, the letter writer was interrupted um, by the time he's writing his last sentence, uh, it, might be, um, it might be a couple hours later. In this case, we know from the, he puts the time on the PS and he puts the time at the head of the letter, and the letter's only seven sentences long. So the, the entire scope of the letter writing process for this, uh, uh, for this ear witness and eyewitness is only about uh, 15 to 20 minutes. And, and it's a quite a revealing uh, letter because of it. Give us some background on the battle of the clouds. Tell us for those who aren't familiar uh, what it was. Okay. The battle of the clouds is really, it's a non-battle. There were casualties primarily with militia, but it, uh, it was, uh, it's, it's a very limited contest. But it could have been something greater. And I think it, it's captured the interest of a lot of people that study the Philadelphia campaign because this happened during that cam uh, campaign. In fact, it occurred five days after the Battle of Brandywine when the same two armies uh, were prepared to go face-to-face -face and toe-to-toe uh, -to -toe against each other um, uh, for a second time in five days. Uh, so the battle interests a lot of people when they write about it in Philadelphia campaign um, anthologies or biographies or some of its participants because of partly because of the what if uh, factor, what could have happened if, if the battle actually commenced, but the battle itself, uh, it, the, the traditional interpretation of it is that the two armies were, had a chance engagement five days after the battle of Brandywine, Washington had retreated from the Brandywine battlefield into Philadelphia uh, recrossed the Schuylkill River and proceeded westward out on the Lancaster Road. And about the same time that he's moving on the Lancaster Road, uh, um, General William Howe and, and uh, the Crown Forces are moving northward from areas near the Brandywine Battlefield and not too far from Chester, Pennsylvania, on, on um, converging roads, and they clash or nearly clash that afternoon on Tuesday, September 16th. And what prevented this from becoming a full-scale uh, assault was a classic nor'easter 
that ends up being one of the heaviest rains ever remembered by the participants of the battle or the citizens in that region of Pennsylvania. Uh, might have been the residual of a hurricane that hit the Caribbean maybe 10 days earlier, but whatever the the source of it was, by the time it swept through that portion of Pennsylvania, Chester County, it lasted for almost uh, 18 hours and definitely put a put a halt to a contest that never really uh, developed and forced Washington to retreat from the contested region and prevented uh, General Howe from pursuing him uh, at all over the next uh, day or so. So it pretty much uh, wiped out any any conflict at all that was going to occur that day. I've, in, in a previous article that I uh, uh, wrote last year for the, for the journal, I've... Uh, I've determined that it wasn't a chance engagement at all. What you really had were two very aggressive gamblers, and that was the the, sub, uh, the title of the article, in both Washington and Howe. Washington had pulled back into uh, the Germantown area. He, he held a council of war uh, with his advisors, his uh, division and brigade commanders, and he was probably testing the pulse of his generals to see how they felt about <laughs> what happened at Brandywine when they were literally decimated by in the infantry. I think they lost about 1,200 uh, soldiers of, out of a 12,000 Continental Infantry Force. And yet he was probably pleased to, to learn that they were um, as aggressive-minded as he was. This is not Washington, the Fabian strategy. This is Washington, the, the um, general always looking for an attack. And that's exactly what um, he proceeded out on the Lancaster road to do. So he, he, cro- he recrosses men over the Schuylkill at a, at a Ford called Leverings Ford, about eight miles above uh, Philadelphia on the 14th. And on the 15th, he is moving along that Lancaster road. And on that same day, general Howe learns that Washington had crossed that Ford and was moving away from Philadelphia. So general Howe has this open uh, invite to just use the same ford that Washington crossed his army over to get away from Philadelphia to cross into Philadelphia fairly uncontested, but he chooses not to. He's going to try to end the Philadelphia campaign once and for all by not using Philadelphia as the endpoint of his objectives. The endpoint is clearly George Washington and the Continental Army, and he proceeds to move north instead of uh, Instead of eastward into Philadelphia, he moves northward in an attempt to uh, to combat George Washington as well. So, so that's why to me this is a very important uh, uh, clash because you had those two uh, generals that were that were seeking each other out to have a, a second go at it after Brandywine. And the battle itself, um, the it actually started out with a skirmish. Uh, uh, primarily with infantry against one wing of uh, uh, General Howe's forces, the the wing that was moving from near Chester under um, Charles Cornwallis, uh, followed about an hour and a half later by another skirmish with um, Hessians under Carl von Dunup at uh, the Boot Tavern. And that really was the only true action that was occurring in this entire contest. The Continentals... uh, really didn't get involved with this uh, at all. And the battle traditionally um, will uh, will end with Washington as he's putting his forces on the South Valley Hills. Uh, this is a portion of the Great Valley that is uh, formed 
between the South Valley Hills and the North Valley Hills and the Lancaster Road runs right in the middle of this. And on those South Valley Hills, Washington was starting to form his army and uh, is urged to pull his force back because they're unformed onto the North Valley Hills. So he crosses completely over the Lancaster Road, puts his men on uh, the North Valley Hills and waits for how to come after him. And that's uh, the time that the rain is already coming in hard and strong. And that prevents that from occurring. And that was the, what if, what if the battle had occurred on the South Valley Hills, could Washington's army have been wiped out? Who knows? <laughs> he certainly, he certainly wasn't prepared to stand toe to toe with the, the British as the battle of Brandywine had proven. Uh, but also Washington at this stage is trying to lure Howe a little bit away from Philadelphia and try to find ground of his choosing to attack him and i believe at this stage he had already lost the initiative because i think he was too slow to react that tuesday on september 16th and that's why um that's why the battle never proceeded beyond these uh, little skirmishes on uh with his infantry uh, um, about two miles apart and about an hour and a half apart from each other what are some of the timeline challenges to fully understanding this battle i you know, and it's not unique. Uh, it's not unique at all from what I see. I've written books about civil war battles <laughs> in the past, and th- those challenges still exist because you know watches aren't synchronized at all. Um, and so, in civil war contests, I see the same thing. What's more difficult about the Revolutionary War uh, battles is that there there are fewer witnesses that are actually writing any times down. So. On a timeline, you might say something occurred in, generally in the morning or in the afternoon or in the evening. Well, that that's fine because that at least helps start you out. This is a this is an interesting contest because you actually have uh, specific times um, written down by soldiers on both sides about certain things that occurred that day, and they there's no way seemingly to marry those two accounts. And I'll give you an example for the. And I didn't include too much of this in the article because it just was going to take far too long to go over. The first one near the Goshen meeting house, a little bit north of it, probably occurred somewhere around two o'clock. And I think that comes mostly from British uh, sources that that lists the time for that. And the one at the Boot Tavern, um, which is a little further west uh, from the Goshen meeting house uh, with uh, with the Hessians against uh, Potter's militia. That probably started somewhere, if you read the British sources, somewhere around three o'clock in the afternoon. Okay, so so that so at least we have that kind of uh, accounts going on. And as the traditional story goes, this is all occurring on the South Valley Hills. So while that's happening, Washington, uh, by the traditional interpretation of this battle, is forming his his uh, continentals just behind those skirmish lines, or I should say just north of those skirmish lines, which are really occurring more on his flanks. And he's forming his army on, on King road, pretty much where Immaculata university uh, is today. And that's when he is urged to pull his army back. And uh, depending on the accounts, the rain is partly driving this uh, decision, but also the fact that only part of his army is up there with him and he's running out of time because they can, because apparently because of the skirmishes that are occurring. And this is what forces Washington off the South Valley Hills and puts him to the North Valley Hills. And the the traditional accounts, if you follow it that way, would have him move that army probably uh, late afternoon. Uh, If the skirmishes are starting, um, the second skirmish is starting somewhere around three o'clock, 
that means Washington's probably not moving his army until uh, later in the afternoon, about 3.30, 4 o'clock, or even 4.30. Uh, and reforming on the heights, it's certainly not an instantaneous uh, motion to, to transfer um, uh, a five-digit uh, figure for your army. And for Washington, I sometimes they put that army at 11,000. I think it was still much greater than that. Uh, but he reforms on the North Valley Hills probably within the next hour or so, maybe even a little bit longer. And traditionally, that would put him late, very late afternoon on the North Valley Hills. Here's what the problem with the timeline is. If you have the British accounts telling you the skirmishes occurred uh, between 2 and 3 o'clock in the afternoon, I have seen the American accounts, uh, the few that offer a time, uh, that that throw a wrench in the whole system. Um, James McMichael's diary, which is cited so often, the Pennsylvanian, uh, says that they left the region at three o'clock in the afternoon. Well, how could that happen, right? How could that happen if you're still uh, have your army on the South Valley Hills and you haven't even shifted it? How in the world could you leave at three in the afternoon? Uh, and that account is actually um, echoed pretty closely by uh, a Marylander, uh, Captain William Beatty, who says that they received their, uh, no, in fact, I think he says they began to march away from the battlefield at two o'clock in the afternoon. So obviously you can, you can appreciate just a little bit difference between two and three with, uh, with uh, that little discrepancy, but it certainly um, uh, puts about a three or a four hour challenge between what the British are telling us in their accounts and what the Americans are telling us in there. So that is the greatest challenge that I see with the timeline of the Battle of the Clouds, is that you do have times offered and they don't agree with each other. So that seemingly there's no way to marry those two accounts. You mentioned some already. What are the best sources we have on this matter? Well, the, the, fortunately for the Battle of the Clouds, we, uh, all the primary source material that you could possibly think of that's been uh, out there about the battle has been collected into one source, and that we're very fortunate to have it, and that's the, the Battle of the Clouds technical report, which uh, uh, was um, a product of uh, Chester County through an American Battlefield Protection Program grant. And um, archaeologists and historians uh, put together all the um, all the source material to create um, to create everything possible that's uh, understandable about what structures were there, uh, where exactly where things happened, and even um, put together or, or use that traditional timeline that I just talked about. But they include not just the the reference of all the primary. Uh, sources that are available, but I think they use the exact excerpts of just about every single one um, that they could find so that you can actually see the account um, in in context uh, rather than just the reference for it. So uh, that, without a doubt, is the single best source for this. The topic of your article is Clement Biddle. Tell us about him. Yeah, well, Clement Biddle is a, a very interesting uh, character and and I think needs uh, a lot more attention and and the focus of my article is more about what he wrote than who he was, but he was who he was was a uh, the the son of a Quaker a Quaker family, who I don't think uh, had uh, any extensive formal education, and yet was uh, made the best of out of every opportunity imaginable 
uh, during the revolution to uh, to uh, rise through the ranks, so to speak, and achieve some um, some very uh, prestigious uh, um, uh, honors for this. I, I think he started out as uh, General Green's volunteer aide de camp in uh, in November of seventy six, and this, I believe, is after he had raised a a Quaker company. Um, a unit out of Philadelphia. And before you know it, he is the deputy quartermaster under Thomas Mifflin and doing double duty because on July 1st, he's, uh, he's um, appointed the commissary general of forage uh, by the Continental Congress. Now, none of these give him a rank and he's called Colonel Biddle. And I don't, to this day, I don't know if that's an honorific or if that's a true rank that was giving him from uh, from his past uh, work at raising that um, that Quaker unit that fought uh, earlier in the war. But he is called Colonel Colonel Biddle, but he actually is uh, is performing double duty as both the deputy deputy quartermaster and the commissary general of forage. And I think it's in the first role, role the deputy of deputy quartermaster, that he writes this letter on September 16th, because it's, it's written to my dear general, but um, I was able to determine that it was sent to his boss, uh, Thomas Mifflin in, in Philadelphia. I believe after the war, by the way, he, uh, he becomes a U.S. Marshal. I think he is the first, the first U.S. Marshal uh, that's a, Pens- a Pennsylvania U.S. Marshal. So he has that distinction as well. And he ends up raising a large family. And I believe he dies in Philadelphia, uh, 1814 or 1815, I believe. What made Biddle's account so important? Well, Biddle's account solves a lot of problems. It's, it, it, first of all, it, it marries the two, the two disparaging accounts that you have from the British side and the American side. And all of a sudden, it makes sense. And in doing so, it changes the uh the traditional tactical interpretation of the battle but also puts the timeline on it as well and not only do we have a timeline of when the forces were engaged but also a timeline on when the rain came in and this all comes down to the fact that he wrote these seven sentences including a ps and put the times on it so that's that's what's fascinating about it most importantly the letter you know uh it was published uh 13 days after it was written in a in a Boston, uh, the Boston Gazette, I believe. And that was probably Mifflin that sent it that way. And then it was picked up by a Rhode Island paper and a New Hampshire one. And it, uh, it didn't see the light of day. I think it was only cited in one other publication since then. And that was, a, uh, that was, uh, just within the last 10 years. And it was using it more for, um, uh, citing what was happening during Washington's retreat from the battlefield, but not using it for what was occurring on the battlefield itself. He was not a, uh, he didn't fight in the battle, uh, but he does tell you what he sees and you can backtrack from the time that he starts his letter and figure out the distance that he traveled and, and how long it took him. So you, you can actually figure out, uh, exactly when he saw, uh, what he witnessed and he also um, can tell you things that he's hearing at the same time. So um, I'll just tell you more specifically, the way he works the accounts out for, for me to finally make sense out of this is that uh, he will write this from Howell's Tavern, which is uh, along the Swedes Ford Road. And it's about five miles from Warren Tavern. And he'll tell you that um, when he begins this letter, it 
uh, at two and a quarter o'clock. So we know he starts us at two fifteen. You almost have to just figure, well, he probably didn't walk. He probably took a horse, but even if he did just walk that the, the timeline would even be shifted more to a point where it wouldn't make any sense. So I think the best determination is that he probably rode a horse uh, to get from his starting point to his location at Howell Tavern. And his starting point, he'll tell you, was just uh, uh, two miles along the Lancaster Road from Warren Tavern, where he saw Washington's army formed on the North Valley Hills. So if you put it together, uh, figuring about the, the trot of a horse and his job was to oversee the wagons um, uh, that were collecting in a wagon park right near Howell's Tavern, uh, you can determine that Washington's army <laughs> was formed on the North Valley Hills by probably no later than one o'clock that afternoon, maybe one one fifteen. That goes against the traditional interpretation, which has Washington moving from the South Valley Hills to the North Valley Hills uh, much later in the afternoon at four thirty or so, and now it puts them up there one to one fifteen. So that's the beauty of this account. Is this is a this is a real time uh, uh, witness telling you telling his um, uh, Thomas Mifflin exactly what he saw, and that was the army formed on the heights on his way to Howell Tavern. So that's very important because now we know that this moves uh, this moves the timeline for the Battle of the Clouds up several hours. Well, let's say at least three to four hours, and then he'll also tell you that the rain. At this time, when he's writing a letter, maybe about four sentences in, it says it has rained at times for near an hour and a half. Now, I won't quote him to the exact minute, but let's say it's about, you know, it's somewhere close to um, to uh, closer to two thirty when he writes that. Maybe we'll even say he's thinking at the start of his letter at two fifteen. Well, 90 minutes from two fifteen um, is twelve forty five. So that means that uh, about the time that Washington's got his army forming on the North Valley Hills is when it started to rain. And that goes again against the traditional interpretation of the Battle of the Clouds, which makes it seem like that the rain was the impetus to uh, one of the um, reasons why Washington was urged to leave the South Valley Hills and go to the North Valley Hills was because the rain started to come down too hard and they were worried about their avenues of retreat getting too muddied up for them to move artillery and, and all those infantry soldiers. Well, that appears not to be the case at all. If we, if we put our reliance on this Biddle, uh, on the Biddle account, which, which has the rain not really even starting until they're toward the end of their re reforming on those North Valley Hills. So that's two of the most important parts of it. But I think the PS to this, it's actually the note of bane of the MB, is what really seals the deal and finally makes both accounts make sense. Now, before I do that, let's say now that we know that the army's up on the hills, on the North Valley Hills, on the north side of the Great Valley at one o'clock, now you think about those other American accounts that talk about leaving at three or leaving at two, and that all of a sudden makes sense to us now. Well, of course, they've they've already been there a couple hours. The rain's starting to come down harder and harder. From that perspective, it seems like this whole thing is over and Washington is leaving by uh, earlier, well, not very early afternoon, but let's say mid-afternoon, all right? Remember, the only thing that went against that was the British accounts that put the time at the skirmishes on the South Valley Hills. And this is where Biddle 
finally has this making a lot more sense to me because at 2.30, he writes, he says half past two, both cannon and musketry have been smart and heavy uh, for a few minutes, uh, but have ceased. So he actually can hear this. He's now an ear witness, even though he's nowhere near the action. He's, he's about six miles away from it here, but he can hear it. And you can hear it distinctly. And that is the boots. That's probably the boot tavern skirmish. So that changes the tactical uh, history of this battle because uh, traditionally we believe that the boot tavern skirmish occurred on Washington's uh, right flank as he was forming his army on the South Valley Hills on King Road near Immaculata University. Well, clearly that can't be the case. Washington had already moved his army. They've already been formed on the North Valley Hills. So the skirmish at Boot Tavern was a separate entity, a separate event where you just had an advanced militia force uh, probably probing on the South Valley Hills to see where um, Howe was forming his army. And that's where they that's where they found him. They were they were hit at, uh, at, at Boot Tavern and had a pretty lively skirmish that lasted for a little while. He says he hears musketry and cannon it's the first time i've ever heard cannon was ever used in this contest but if he did hear cannon fire it clearly couldn't have been how in washington exchanging cannon fire from uh both sides of the great valley because the two heights stood well over two miles away from each other and that would have you know that would have been wasted artillery fire for the uh for the strength and distance that a um that a uh, revolutionary war era cannon could fire at that time so uh, clearly, he's hearing the skirmishing on the on the South Valley Hills, and it finally tells us that the British accounts aren't wrong on the time. Maybe he has it at two thirty, and a couple of the accounts have it from that from their perspective have it closer to three. But the good news from all this is that it now makes sense. Yes, you can have the British telling you the skirmishing is occurring at two thirty, at around the same time that the Americans say that they're going to be leaving about three o'clock because they are two separate entities. They're not all on the South Valley Hills. It's just, it's just the militia um, skirmishing, uh, uh, feeling out what's, what's up on South Valley Hills while Washington's Continentals are formed on the other side of the valley. So that's the, that's the most important part uh, of the Biddle account is that it, it gives us a new timeline. Um, it's a strong one. It makes sense. And that for the first time makes both opposing accounts understandable. I always relish the chance to talk shop for any would-be historians who might be interested. Uh, what lessons should historians take from the use of primary sources like this? Well, you know, for, for primary sources, the, the general, and, and this, is, this is probably my crossover from my from graduate school that I learned from, um, from reading uh, scientific literature, it, it kind of follows along the same path. You gotta, uh, you gotta learn about where the, where the weaknesses in these, in, in primary material can be and where it can't be. So if you're, if you're going to grade um, the, the strength of a, pri- of a primary source material, uh, a firsthand account, generally the, the notion is, well, you would take somebody, somebody's, um, uh, the time and when from the time from the event as more important uh, than than a much later memory, for example, or a memoir. So if somebody's writing uh, within a day or two of the contest, it usually takes higher uh, precedent over uh, somebody that was writing, let's say, in the early 1800s about the same contest. Um, 
but at the same time, you have to make sure that the that there's no bias involved with the person writing it. Are they writing it from a perspective that uh, changes the history to their benefit? Uh, could that have been happening? You have to determine who they're writing to, why they're writing it in the first place. And what I what you learn from the Biddle letter from all this is that he's probably what I would call the most um, unimpeachable source. He he doesn't have a uh, you know, he's writing this as a, as a, almost as a, uh, uh, not just as a witness, but almost as a reporter. He, as he's writing this letter to uh, Mifflin, he, he says, oh, I hear this, or I just saw this, or this is when the rain started. It's almost matter of fact, but it, it's putting the time there. And and I give that, that's why I give this article, um, or this, excuse me, this letter that became a um, an excerpt in the newspaper as uh, uh, the highest credibility that you can give a single account because it, it definitely um, uh, makes other it makes other accounts that seemingly can't agree it finally makes them agree and it uh, it occurs at a uh, at a time when we would call it a real time witness where anybody else that could possibly have been writing about the battle of the clouds even if they had a journal entry that said September sixteenth for those that uh, know the contest. The rain was coming down so hard in heaven. The army was marching from late afternoon up until early morning hours. The, fi- the, the following morning probably weren't entering anything in their journals on September 16th. It was probably September 17th. Does that mean uh, anything? Not really. But when it comes to some of the witnesses that wrote about the battle of clouds, they just make it a, a muddier picture, no pun intended. But I'm thinking of uh, Adjutant General Timothy Pickering, who wrote four times about the Battle of the Clouds. And I think the least reliable one is, goes against the green because it would be the source that I would tell you it would be the most reliable, his journal entry. Right? His journal entry disagrees with the other three uh, accounts he wrote about the battle, and those three all agree with each other. He wrote, uh, he wrote a week about six days later to his brother about it, and then in the early 1800s he wrote... Um, I think to two different uh, governors um, uh, about the Battle of the Clouds, and those those three accounts that were later than the journal entry seem to agree very strongly. Whereas his journal entry, um, which which makes the which makes the retreat from the South Valley Hills appear to be dependent on the rainstorm that had come in, um, not agree with the other accounts, and and I think because of the Biddle. Uh, letter. I'm not believing uh, Pickering's journal entry anymore either when I used to give it much higher credibility because of the fact that it was uh, entered the day after um, the day after the contest. So, uh, but in general terms, that's what I'm learning about primary source material is that even, even those entries that are uh, within a day of the event or um, a half a day of the event, uh, as I've demonstrated just with the, the time applied by um, a couple of the of the American soldiers. One says we left at two o'clock. One says we left at three o'clock. I should mention there's even another account from a um, a colonel, a New Jersey colonel uh, named Elias Dayton, who who says that uh, we left at about noon. Uh, he says we left at about twelve o'clock. Now, um, and that's more of a memoir uh, of the war, and he even has the date of the contest wrong. So we even learned from those kind of accounts that uh, if they don't agree, you have to see what other way um, could the account be faulty. And if you got the wrong date, then you probably have the wrong time. So those are the kind of things I think that we, 
uh, we can learn from these kind of sources. And and from my perspective, I've, I guess I have a unique way of doing this because I've, I'm I'm currently writing about uh, a book, a, a, a campaign biography, as I call it, of George Washington uh, for for a year of the war, which includes this campaign. Um, from the perspective of writing it, I, I find that a, a lot of things that I learned from my um, uh, 20 years, 20 plus years of, of writing about the Civil War, um, I'm, I'm learning that in the Revolutionary War, um, it's really not that much different in terms of how to analyze these source materials. The only thing I'll tell you with the Revolutionary War in comparison is that, um, uh, by and large, the... Uh, uh, the absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. There's just fewer sources in the revolution. It just, and it means that if, if, if it's not described by anybody, it doesn't mean it didn't happen, I suppose, is, uh, is my best way of trying to uh, establish the differences between those two eras. How does this story help us to understand the revolutionary era better? Uh, I will, in addition to what I've already described about it, it's just, I'm only talking about, um, um, somebody who's writing in a 20 minute period and it's not a earth shaking in terms of what, what it does for the entire revolution. But I think it, I think what it does is it, it helps us how to understand the revolutionary era better in uh, from, from the perspective of the historian is that there's probably a lot of these kind of uh, uh, accounts that are still out there, still fairly uncovered accounts uh, that can, that can certainly change our understanding and, and things that we have written about traditionally, we have to sometimes um, uh, uh, determine not just the what's and the where's uh, and the when's, but the, the harder parts sometimes coming up with the how's and the why's. And this, this letter doesn't even establish that. And that's kind of what we have to do with, uh, with the, uh, our understanding of the revolutionary era better. But I think what this letter tells me is that uh, we can, uh, there's still ways that we can resolve vast differences in accounts and make them make sense. Sometimes we get very lucky with a letter like this that can do that kind of thing. So I think that helps us to to understand how to interpret the Revolutionary War era is through these kind of accounts. Gary Eckelbarger, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much, Brady. Appreciate it. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.